If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 948 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Kala in Sweden, who recently wrote us this five-star review. Very thankful for this show. It's nuanced and presents good introductions to aspects of the wonderful worlds of SF and fantasy. Inspirational. I strongly recommend others subscribe as well. So big thanks again to Kala for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 459 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today's topic is classic graphic adventure games. So we'll be discussing computer games from the 80s and 90s, such as King's Quest and The Secret of Monkey Island, that focused on storytelling and story-based puzzles. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Kurt Collada. He founded the gaming websites Hardcore Gaming 101, The Castlevania Dungeon, and The Contra HQ. And he's also contributed to several other sites, including 1UP, Game of Sutra, and Silicon Era. He's also edited and published 15 books including the Guide to Classic Graphic Adventures and the 200 Best Video Games of All Time. And he's also contributed to other books, such as The Untold History of Japanese Game Developers and The Overstreet Guide to Collecting Video Games. So, Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And also joining us today is Julia Minamata. She's a freelance game developer, pixel artist, and illustrator based in Toronto. And her illustrations have appeared in Business Week, The National Post, and The New Yorker. Her pixel art can be seen in the game Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, which will be released later this year. She's currently at work on her first solo project, a 16-color retro adventure game called The Crimson Diamond, which features music by Grammy-nominated musician Dan Policar. So, Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start off with Kurt. And have you tell us, how did you first get into adventure games? They were some of the first games I ever played when I was a kid with my dad. Uh, we had an Atari 400 computer, and we spent a lot of time either with the uh, the type-in programs we got from different magazines or from just like assorted games that he bought. Uh, so some of the first memories I have was actually playing stuff like uh, The Wizard and the Princess and uh, Mission Asteroid, I think it was called, like some of the very first uh, online systems games back then. Um, then later on down the line, we got an Apple II, and that's where I first got King's Quest, played some of the Infocom titles. And uh, on the Nintendo, play stuff like Shadowgate and Maniac Mansion. Uh, but when we got a Sega CD, uh, by chance we rented The Secret of Monkey Island, and I was just completely enamored with it. Uh, it's one of the very few games that I actually bought a- after renting it, even though we had basically beaten it, just because I loved uh, going back and listening to all the, uh, reading all the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, like the year after that, we got uh, a PC, uh, the multimedia PC at the time, which you know, had a CD-ROM computer, a CD-ROM in it, and it was. It was a really good time to get into that stuff because that's when, you know, Day of the Tentacle and Sam and Max, uh, a lot of the Sierra CD game, CD-ROM games were coming out at that time. And there were also a lot of really cheap, older adventure games that I could get at the local uh, warehouse discount place. Uh, so I just got play- and played as much as I could at the time. And it just like threw myself into it when I was, this probably would have been when I was like eighth grade or so. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely you're you're pinging a lot of my memories there with uh yeah, I mean like Secret of Monkey Island, one of my all-time favorite games. I definitely all, you know, just played that like you said over and over again just cuz it's so much fun. 
Um, and Wizard of the Princess, I haven't thought about Wizard and the Princess in a long time. If people don't know, Online Systems is what Sierra Online was called before they changed their name. Um, but that game is sort of notorious to me because I, I literally couldn't solve the first puzzle in the game. And so I never got anywhere. You, know, you, you start off, you're in the desert and there's this uh, rock and a snake and the snake just killed me and I, I got frustrated. I never got anywhere in the game. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so how about Julia? How did you first get into adventure games? I'm kind of the same with uh, with Kurt in that my it was kind of via my dad and talking to friends that have have had similar experiences, kind of a, a network of office working software pirating dads who would photocopy the game manuals, <laughs> um, you know, at, at work and then bring them home. So we'd always have this rotation of games coming in and out of the house. And uh, my first computer was a, Com- a Commodore VIC twenty, and it was great. You know, the big cartridges. We had the cassette deck and everything like that. Um, and those were good games, but the first game that actually made a real big impression on me was King's Quest One, which, which I think is is the case for a lot of people who who really get into adventure games early. My my dad had um, what was called a portable computer back in the day. He would bring it back from work, and as portable as a twenty or thirty pound suitcase style green monochromatic screen, like a tiny little screen, um, built right into the unit. And that was my first kind of exposure to King's Quest 1 and immediately I could tell it was different from any other game I had played up to the uh, up to that point. The the artwork of course was is so much more complicated than anything else I'd seen. There was, you know, different screens and d- different areas, a whole real world to explore. My sister made a map eventually of of the whole overworld kind of. And just the pacing of it was a lot different from the arcade stuff. And that pace of adventure games where you kind of move through it at your own speed, and it's more like a, a book than anything else, and than, than an arcade type of game, really did appeal to me. And and so I found as an artsy, bookish kid, interactive storytelling was was a kind of game that I kind of was m- more appealed to me. Of course, Secret of Monkey Island was a huge one for me as well. And um, it kind of uh, that color palette we talked you talked early on about the EGA color palette that that my game is made in. That that certainly did make a big impression on me. Okay, wait, but you said you played King's Quest on a monochrome monitor. I did. <laughs> and and I did I did love that a lot. Um and eventually we we got to we got a computer at home that that could run it in C, a CGA and and that was a like a whole other world of of experiencing <laughs> King's Quest 1. Um and I I do have a lot of affection for those limited color palettes. Um as a freelance illustrator, I I did silk screen printing, which also is a limited color palette, and one of my one of my big influences was comic books, which is another limited color palette. So I kind of find I gravitate toward that style and just I, again as kind of a bookish type of person um who who really liked reading, the adventure games were the thing for me for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I guess I was lucky because, you know, my, my parents both worked for IBM. And so they got me a PC Junior when that came out. And at the time, the IBM PC was only CGA, so only four colors at a time. <laughs> but the PC Junior had EGA, so it was 16 colors at a time. So King's Quest, yeah, like you're saying, it was just unbelievable compared to anything on the market or like anything you'd ever seen before. You know, you had this little guy on the screen and it's, you know, there's green trees and blue water and everything. <laughs> and he walks, he can walk behind a tree and he, uh, you know, disappears behind the tree and comes out again. This is all sprites, all t- 2D uh, pictures. But, you know, just that they actually uh, marketed the game as like 3D animated yes, adventures. Yes. Because <laughs> um, uh, it was pretty 3D by the standards of the day. Um but yeah, yeah. So, so King's Quest was just huge for me, and, I, and it was hard, you know. And at the time, you know, I was just a little kid, and so, um, you know, I would play it with my best friend, and 
uh, he would, you know, I would work the the cursor keys to move the character around and he would type messages. And, you know, the game didn't pause in order to let you type things. So, you, you know, you actually had to be, and if you're a little kid, you know, you can't type very fast and, you know, you're like, how do you spell bridge and how do you spell knife and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so that was super fun. But so, uh, so Kurt, were you, uh, how many colors did you play King's Quest in? Uh, we had a monochrome monitor. Uh, eventually we figured oh, out, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> eventually we figured out that we could hook it up to our television, but that wasn't something that, you know, I was six or seven years old. So it wasn't something I was really allowed to do very often. Yeah. But I mean, um, do you guys, uh, or Kurt, do you relate to what I'm saying here about as a kid, you know, in order to play these games, you had to learn how to read and how to spell and how to type and, and all this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, my, my dad had bought, uh, different guidebooks back then, which we, he used to help get through, you know, any of the Zork games that we had. Um, and King's Quest was featured. So I spent a lot of time just paging through those books and, like I was never able to beat King's Quest back then, but it, it sort of taught me the world, even though I, if I didn't experience it firsthand. Mm-hmm. Did you how Did you find any of the three treasures of Daventry? Oh God, I can't remember. Oh, you can't remember? Oh man, I could. I feel like I could still tell you how to beat any puzzle in any King's Quest game, except for two. I didn't like that one as much, but I don't know. We'll see if it comes up in this. But um, uh, so Julie, did you play all the King's Quest games? Like. After after number one, I'm kind of the same as you. I didn't really play two so much. King's Quest three, I was big into. King's Quest four, five, King's Quest five was a big um, holiday uh, purchase that came in, and uh, King's Quest six as well. So I, for some reason, two kind of fell by the way. So I don't know why that happened. I mean, and you had that same experience, which is kind of odd. But yeah, uh, King's Quest was kind of my big thing. We had a neighbor who was into the space quest. So that was nice because we would be able to trade off the games when we were done with them and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I loved, I love the text parser. I love that level that that level of interaction. And I know it's kind of a tough one to get behind nowadays, but I'm still a fan. I kind of want to bring that back. I'm still a fan of the text parser. Yeah. I mean, I was, it, it was funny. It was funny. You know, I mentioned my friend, like, you know, when um, actually, well, I guess this isn't a, it's a little bit different, but when King's Quest Four came out, they made it so that when you started typing, it actually paused the game and it let you type in whatever you want in safety. And then, like, there was no point in the two of us being at the keyboard together, and our friendship kind of fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the 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 sort of thing that always sticks in my head in regards to the text parser. I mean, this is actually about a literal text adventure game, but there was this game called Wishbringer from Infocom, and um, and one of my friends was playing it and. This is like 40 years ago, so I might not remember this exactly right. But but basically, she needed to find 3D glasses, you know, like those cardboard red and blue cellophane type 3D glasses within the game. And there was this movie theater, but she couldn't figure out where to get 3D glasses at the movie theater. It was like, you know, I don't know, there's, they were all out or something. And so she was talking to, you know, an adult and he, who would play, who would be in the game. And he was kind of giving her hints and stuff. And it sort of clicked what she had to do. And so she went back to the computer and typed in, you know, she went into the, the theater and typed, look under seats. And then if you look under the seats, you find the, the 3D glasses. And I've always thought of that as like, you know, it I don't think there's any way to do that with a point and click interface because you would just like click on the seat or you would see that there's a hotspot under the seat or whatever in order in order to have to actually solve that puzzle in your head and communicate it to the game. You need a text parser, it seems to me. So mm-hmm. I, I lament the loss of the text parser. Um, Kurt, what do you think? I feel like you might be a text parser. Uh, no, I actually really preferred the, the point and click stuff. 
Yeah, no, that's what, I'm, that's, what that's the sense. Because I, I read your book, you know, I read, so I read, I, I'll mention, I read uh, Kurt's book. Uh, what's it called? The Guide to Classic Adventure. Guide yeah. To Classic Graphic Adventures. Yeah. Uh, it's an 800 page book. Uh, it's very long. It took me like a year to read it. <laughs> I was doing other stuff. So. <laughs> but, um, but it's, I, I appreciate, I was just looking, Kurt, you know, in the intro, it says, uh, if you read this book cover to cover, you can consider yourself an expert. So I consider myself an expert <laughs> in adventure games now. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it wasn't necessarily like the typing, but also the controls, because the Sierra games got kind of hateful when it came to maneuvering through certain things. Like, uh, I, I don't think it was out by the time that I wrote that book, but there's this one game called Stair Quest, <laughs> which was a parody of like explicitly King's Quest three, I want to say, of just the, the entire game was navigating upstairs and across bridges and stuff like that, like in uh, in old Sierra games. And it was just like made to kill you. Uh, yeah, it's a good joke game. Well, yeah, like King's Quest three, um, in order to, you know, you start out at this house on top of a mountainside and you have to get down into the surrounding countryside. In order to get down, you have to navigate through this treacherous, um, you know, trail. And at one point you pass behind this giant boulder. And since it's, you know, you can't see anything because your character is behind this boulder. And so you just fall and die over and over again. It's really, really frustrating. Um, <laughs> Not and, to and mention yeah. that in-game clock that's just ticking the whole time yeah. that you can <laughs> see. Yeah, I mean, I love King's Quest Three. I, I think it's such a brilliant design because you're, you know, you're enslaved by this evil wizard, and you have to sneak around and gather up, you know, find your way down into a secret laboratory and teach yourself magic and gather a spell components and all without him noticing and everything. So I, I love the game, but yeah, there's there's a lot of frustrating things for sure about all those King's Quest games, um, including like just puzzles that make absolutely no sense at all. Um, I don't know if anyone does anyone have any uh, puzzles. Julia, do you have any puzzles, any puzzles that stick out that just drove you crazy? Well, yeah, and well, King's Quest Three, I will say, is probably one of the most stressful games I've ever played. It, it kind of plays into a lot of kind of concerns about being on time for things, getting caught <laughs> as well, and, and yeah, and then that time pressure of getting up and down that mountain. Um, but the thing is with that one, and it kind of made the text parser not fun because of the the puzzles that had to do with the spell book. Yeah. And it's not like they were illogical, but it was a matter of transcribing everything perfectly under time pressure and 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 not kind of yeah, not uh, not no room, no margin for error with those with those puzzles. Uh, but the the ones that that make the least sense are the are ones I kind of don't remember. There's infamous ones people talk about, like they talk about the cat hair mustache in in, Gab uh, <laughs> in um was it Gabriel Knight 2, was it? Um, which I never actually played, but yeah, I mean, people talk about that. They're immortal. They're immortalized in people's minds, but um, I, I try, I try to avoid them in, in my own stuff. And I, I try not to think about them too much because I, I don't think it's fair. And I think we've kind of gotten beyond that. I feel like I want to say it was Gabriel Knight three, but I actually never okay. played, any, played any of those games. <laughs> yeah, it is I, Gabriel Knight three, but uh, like, that, that puzzle was so famous that like by the time I played it, I already knew, yeah. <laughs> knew the solution. <laughs> Well, like the the one that sticks out to me is the one from King's Quest Two, where there's a a mountain pass and there's a snake, and you have to get past the snake, and this and you have a bridle that you found, and the solution is put bridle on snake, at which point the snake transforms into Pegasus, and it turns out it was a magic bridle, and the snake was turned in or the Pegasus was turned into a snake by magic, and there's like no right naturally <laughs> that uh that 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 any of that is you know that the the magic that the bridle's magic or that the snake is magic or anything. <laughs> So, so yeah, uh, some of those things, and this is, this is the thing is, you know, I, I love these games so much, but, um, 
yeah, thinking about going back and playing them now, I don't, I, there's no way I could deal with that, a lot of that stuff, I don't think. But I, I do miss the text parser a lot. Um, but, but so, so, Kurt, so you were saying, so like you prefer the, talk about the, the, why you prefer the point and click interface to the uh, text parser. It's just so much easier to navigate like everything. Cause in the old games, especially like the, the, the very early SC, SCI 1.0 games, like just going through the world was very, very slow. Whereas, uh, the point and click interface, at least as far as like the SEO, SCI 1.0 was like King's Quest 1, 2, 3. And then SCI 2 was King's Quest 4. And that's the one where you, like, you know, you would start typing and then it would pause and you could actually click around the screen and things like that. And just that was so much more comfortable because they didn't have to use the keyboard. Um, and, and just puzzle solving, like trying to solve puzzles is just a matter of what do you say? You only have so many tools to interact with the world. So eventually, like there may be hundreds of permutations, but eventually if you're just trying things, you will solve it. And that was like a, a comfortable blanket feeling for me. <laughs> like you could try everything, but eventually you would find it. And in a text adventure game, there's just so many things. And, and especially the parsers and CR games weren't particularly good compared to an Infocom game where uh, at, at least it might try a little bit more with those games. They had a better vocabulary. Uh, I, I think if the game was a little bit more upfront about telling you which things it understood and also didn't have to guess about what it decided to call a noun, or at least was better about having synonyms for certain words, then it would have been better. Yeah, well, let me read this. I wrote this down from your book. Uh, This is about one game. It says, at one point, you need to give an item to a rodent-like thing, but the game won't accept mouse, rat, or anything of the like. Instead, you need to look at the screen and be told that, oh, that strange little thing is called a caliph, which is just a made-up fantasy word. So, so yeah, like definitely stuff like that could get a little frustrating, but, um, um, but so let's see. So yeah, but my favorite, like, like I played all the King's quest games. I played all the space quest games, all the quest for glory games, uh, the first two police quest games. And then, you know, the monkey Island games are, are the ones that's sort of like the core of my adventure gaming, uh, you know, experience. Um, so Julie, is that, was that pretty similar for you or were there, did you ever, uh, venture far outside the Sierra LucasArts kind of stuff? No, I pretty much have the same experiences as you have with them. Just basically sticking to the, the Sierra and LucasArts stuff, which is why I have been reading through Kurt's book as well. And it's been really cool to kind of get reminded of some of the stuff I remember seeing in the ads in my, you know, my, um, computer gamer world magazine. Just like, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, that box cover. I remember that mentioned in passing and, and then getting to be reminded and seeing. And and fortunately, some of that stuff is still available. I mean, not all of it is, but it, it's nice to know that, that is a, there's a potential to revisit, although I might just watch somebody else play it now while I'm doing other things. But it's it's really cool to to discover that stuff that that is that has been there this whole time. But yeah, I've kind of been pretty mainstream about it. I, I, I did like the LucasArts stuff more when I was a kid because it's just the designs, the designs for the games were, you know, less illogical most of the time, more forgiving. And uh, the Sierra stuff, I think more in terms of the artwork, I think I tended to favor that more than the LucasArts. Look, I love them both, but um, the games I remember playing the most, remembering the most fondly was Secret of Monkey Island, Day of the Tentacle, um, and uh, 
well, also of course the Quest for Glory series and stuff like that with Sierra. But um, I, I like this safe feeling of Lucas Arts versus you know we talked about King's Quest three and falling off the mountain really easily and and and, and that really punitive wizard. Yeah, I, I preferred the the more cartoony and, and more helpful and friendlier approach of the Lucas Arts stuff. Yeah, I mean, reading Kurt's book, I, I would have said that I was pretty well versed in adventure games, <laughs> and that I that I you know before I read the book, then that, that I would have at least heard of like almost all the major adventure games. And then reading through this book, I was like, holy crap, I cannot believe how many games there are in here that are described as well known major games that I've never heard of before. Um, so, so Kurt, talk about that. So you, did you mostly play, when did you get into all these non Sierra, non LucasArts games? Were you into those as a kid or was it only when you became a hardcore gaming one-on-one <laughs> kind of person? Uh, I had tinkered with some of the other ones. Like, like I mentioned before, I played Shadowgate and there was a, a trilogy of those that came out on the NES, which was, uh, Shadowgate, Deja Vu and Uninvited, uh, from a company called ICOM. And I think nowadays people remember the Nintendo versions of those games more than the original Macintosh and PC versions. Um, but there's a couple other games I, I had picked up back in the day because PC Gamer had recommended them, like uh, Beneath the Steel Sky, which was from Revolution Revolution Studios, who eventually made Broken Sword later down the line. I'd play Discworld, which was sort of my introduction to Terry Pratchett, uh, just because one of my friends, his mom, owned uh, a computer store that actually rented computer games. So I was able to give that game a try. And it was very funny, but also extremely hateful. Um I, I, I played Mist. I didn't really like Mist. Uh, I played The Seventh Guest, which I liked more because the music was really good and it had animated uh, stuff. But I never really liked those sort of games that were more about more about puzzle solving, like those logic puzzles that just didn't really gel with me. It didn't really have the, the story or characterization that I liked so much about uh, the Lucas and Sierra games. Uh, but I think those were most of them. I did play Return to Zork. Um uh, I didn't play any of the follow-ups until much later. But yeah, it wasn't until I was like, okay, I'm going to write for my site about all these adventure games. And I'll be like, it's going to be Sierra, LucasArts, and then a handful of secondary stuff, and that'll be it. And then <laughs> the more I kept playing, it just it just bloomed and grew and grew and grew as I, <laughs> as I learned more stuff and eventually had to set a stopping point. Like, I can't, I can't play all this stuff. This book would be too big to, to pick up. Well, let me just say, I was totally an adventure game hipster when uh mist came out i was like this is not a real game you know, these yeah have nothing to do with the story like although actually reading your book gave me a lot more respect for the mist series because i i only played you know the very beginning of the first game and it sounded like you know there were a lot of things like a lot of the uh the worlds that they created sound just sounded just amazing from the the descriptions in the book yeah, luckily I had a contributor that wrote all the missed article because I didn't want to. Do, <laughs> I didn't want to do it, and he did a really good job of of convincing someone who, who like you, also thought that they were pretty lousy to mainstream games, uh, but really helped understand, you know, why these were why these were important, why they created such a big world, and uh, why they got so popular. Yeah, is there anything else more to say, Kurt, about like the origins of this book, like? Um... Do you remember like when the idea first came to you to do a an eight hundred page book about adventure game? <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be eight hundred pages <laughs> at first. Um, well, like, like I spent a lot of time as a kid flipping through, um, you know, like, like adventure game guidebooks, and there was specifically right as we got my multimedia computer, we went on a long vacation where I had uh, like a CD ROM classic guidebook that it went through like Day of the Tentacle and, and Gabriel Knight, like everything that was popular at the mid nineties. I sort of remember keeping that around as my Bible 
even though like it was mostly just how to play the games and how to beat them. But I knew how to beat Gabriel Knight front to back before I had even seen the game. <laughs> but I sort of like, well, I, I would like something that was like this, but actually about the games. And that was kind of the origin of what I wanted to do. And around that time was when Amazon started their, their uh, self-publishing service, which I was able to actually get that off the ground and, and put on Amazon. So how many of these games, did you play all the games that you wrote about in the book? Uh, I, I wasn't the sole author. Um, I guess but, but, of... it, but you wrote most, I mean, it, you know, it, at the beginning it says like other people wrote like these <laughs> about these 30 games. Then it says like all else by Kurt Kalata. Oh I yeah, mean, that was me. So, I mean, you must have played Hunt, like, I don't even know. I like, can't even remember. I mean, but yeah, for, for like a, at least a year or two, almost every day after work, like for an hour or two, I just, you know, boot up something and then and then play through it. And were you using um, like walkthroughs? After a certain point, it depended on how much I liked the game. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> if I liked the game, then I was fine. There were a lot of games that I had already played when I was a kid and was just kind of refreshing my mind. Um, but, but yeah, the games that I didn't like, I'm like, okay, I just, I can't tolerate this game. I'm just going to brute force it. Yeah. Um, so, so Julia, so you said you picked up uh, this book. Do you have any other, uh, any other uh, reactions to, to reading the book? What I, I really liked learning about the history of, of the adventure games and just developers following developers from company to company. And for instance, the, some of the Sierra people ending up at legend, Zork developers ending up at Legend, LucasArts forming Telltale. <laughs> I, I was never aware of that stuff growing up. And so seeing that and getting that thread of, okay, well, these were cool games. And all of a sudden, cool games showed up at this other company. Well, they were actually made by the same people. I thought that was really interesting and kind of goes to show that, you know, developers, sometimes they have a certain genre that they really like to stick to. And, and, and I love the fact that Telltale wanted to keep the adventure game spirit alive. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of developers just loved making adventure games. And then when games became more like, you know, like Doom, Call of Duty and stuff, like I think a lot of people, you know, always, you know, they were sort of like they got uh, expelled from Eden or something and they uh, and they never were able to, to, to make games uh, that they liked as much as, as those kinds of games. Um, There's a... So- uh, a couple of months ago, I was working uh Limited Run Games was putting out this gigantic uh, collector's edition for the Monkey Island series. And uh, I helped interview like about a dozen people that were in- involved with making those games. And the general impression at the time was like Lucasfilm didn't really care about making money all that much. Like, like it was just kind of like a fun side project so they could kind of do whatever they wanted. Um, but things did shift more the late 90s. It wasn't necessarily that adventure gamers were sick getting sick of adventure games but the budgets for were increasing all around and the adventure gaming audience wasn't increasing the way that it was for the hot games like real-time strategy games or or first-person shooters so at a certain point management was like well we can make so much more money uh making a first-person shooter than adventure game and that's kind of kind of when those fell by the wayside i mean sierra went under significant (laughs) <laughs> some sort of significant business issues, which I know there there was like two Sierra books that came out within the past year. Uh, one was by Ken Williams that <laughs> went about how the company basically imploded, uh, which of course spelled the end of all those Sierra games. And then LucasArts kind of shut down their adventure game stuff and transitioned mostly towards Star Wars licensed stuff. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into the collapse of the company because I, I still want to read that Ken Williams book and, and maybe do another episode about that. But I will just say there was also this massive financial fraud, which I think was the big before Enron, 
was the biggest financial fraud in, in U.S. business history is what led to the collapse of Sierra. Um, but yeah, that's a whole other story that I'll, I'm, I'm going to revisit, I think, in the future. Um, but I think it's it's interesting what you're saying about how, you know, these games, I think the the audience, you know, at the time, just the audience for PC games in general was small enough that you could do pretty niche things and still be a success. And so it, it really um, struck me reading your book, just how many games there were that were just based on science fiction novels, fantasy and science fiction novels. So like Rama, Gateway, Companions of Xanth, Shannara, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Neuromancer, Dune, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, Ringworld, and you mentioned Discworld. And I feel like, you know, these days, um, I, don't, I don't feel like there's a ton of um, crossover anymore between games and books. I mean, you've got like Harry Potter or Wit The Witcher maybe or something like that. But, you know, something like I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, I don't feel like would ever be. Made a video game these days. Uh, there was one series I was surprised that they did. Uh, I forget what it's called by an author named Ken Follett. Um, but oh, the Pillars of the Earth. Yeah, I want something like that because uh, I, I want to say it may be a Datalik game. Um, but I was surprised that they, they saw it like a GameStop for the PS4. But yeah, you're right. There's there's so many of these sci-fi and uh, ad- fantasy adventure series that you don't see made into any games. But that's kind of true all around. Because there are so many, like like before, like every cartoon got a video game, like for the Nintendo. And nowadays, it's kind of rare that you would see anything like that. Like the DuckTales show, like, you know, the DuckTales game, everybody loved that back to Nintendo, but the reboot never got anything. And it just struck me as really strange. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention, I have a note here about how the Xanth, that game, that Xanth game, Companions of Xanth, actually came with a Pierce Anthony book, just packaged with it. To just give you an idea of how much, mm-hmm. um, how much I guess uh, uh, game developers were assuming that they're the people playing these games were also readers, you know. In the, in the long run, it ended up being kind of unfortunate because, like, if they want to republish those games, they need to relicense them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means going through their estate, and you know, who knows how that works out. So I don't think you know Xanth has never been re-released, as far as I know. The um, one of the best ones they did was uh, Callahan's Cross Time Saloon which is based on a series of books by Spider Robinson. And uh, like e- even that particular series, I had picked up a bunch of them. And, you know, they were long out of print. So, th- I mean, they weren't super expensive, but they were not, not just like cheap paperbacks. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, w- I really wish it was more easily available. Yeah. Well, so, Julia, you mentioned that you would read like Computer Gaming World and stuff like that. Um so, so wh- how much of an idea did you have of like who the developers were and um, you know what the companies were and stuff uh, playing these games? Well, I think Sierra did a really good job about putting the developers' names on the front of the boxes, and so that gave me a little bit of an idea. And also, if not on the front and the back, they'd have the back of the box. They'd have, be a photo of the developers, so you'd see Roberta Williams, you'd see Al Lowe, you'd see Laurie and Corey Cole. So there was, I think, an awareness of the developers as you know, these creative forces that were behind these projects. So there, for me, there was some of that awareness. Um, but some of the companies were not as really forthcoming with, with kind of celebrating and showing who was actually behind the stuff. And so I, I didn't really have that, that same awareness. So when I was reading Kurt's book and seeing, oh, yeah, these developers made this game. And then, oh, yeah, there's this other really cool game that was also made by the same people. I, I found that kind of really interesting and it shouldn't really be surprising because as you said it it just people some developers really love making the style of game and unfortunately as time went on there was there were fewer and fewer opportunities to do so 
I think we we talk about the licensed games and how there there are fewer of those things around. I think nowadays when we see you know the so many adventure games are being produced in in the modern era more than there ever were back in the day. A lot of those are kind of small, you know, either like solo like me or very small studios. And of course, we don't really have the funds to go around licensing games. But what we do is we, we're able to kind of create our own our own properties, which is another it's a really nice opportunity to kind of do something unique, unique with stories in the genre. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely I definitely like how um, how Sierra made sort of celebrities out of their mm-hmm. designers. And, and even like the um, I remember really vividly the um, when Space Quest 2 came out. And there's this picture on the back of the box of um, of the two guys from Andromeda, and they're wearing like mohawk <laughs> skull, you know, skull caps and um, sunglasses and pig noses, and they and they're next to this um, like a you know like a Ferrari or something, and um, and it says you know like they haven't let the success you know Space Quest One was a big success, but they haven't let it go to their heads or something like that, and then that became this whole like thing where you know in Space Quest Three, then the, you have to rescue the the two guys from Andromeda from an evil software company and and stuff and um yeah you you did really feel like you knew them um i guess have you ever um julia have you ever like met any um any game designers or corresponded with them or or anything like that actually i i have and i'm really i really feel fortunate i mean before the current situation that we're in right now i did go to uh, pax west and i was able to meet laurie and Corey cole which was really amazing and uh, i got to meet douglas herring who was the artist for the colonel's bequest which is a main inspiration for my game and i i met um al Lowe was also there so it was really cool they were on an adventure game panel together so i kind of got to see them and and to chat a little bit to, uh, to with Laurie and Corey Cole, and it's something I never really expected to happen, and never I never expected to be ever in the same room as these people because you grow up and you think yeah well these are people but they I never cross paths with with, with people who were so formative in 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 my childhood no so it, it was really cool to see and going to events for to show my game just kind of running into people here and there and and seeing people that are still developing which is really kind of inspiring to see for instance Laurie and Corey Cole have their own company now and they're making their own games so what's the person's name you said who did the art for Colonel's Bequest Douglas Herring Douglas Herring did the art he did uh, he worked with Sierra on uh, Quest for Glory 2 he did he did some work on uh, Conquest of Camelot he did the cover for Manhunter 2 he actually got to illustrate the cover for that and later on when he left Sierra he did he worked on Rimworld as well as, well as a, like I think a Deep Space 9 game or something like that um but yeah he's been around in the industry for a really long time and and he's one of my heroes because the art that he made for that game is some of the most beautiful EGA artwork that I've ever seen does he have a project that he's doing now, or was he just there just to talk about the the good old days? He was he was there just to talk about the good old days. Oh yeah, also I got to meet also like Josh Mandel as well. Um, so that, it was really cool to, to talk to him and hear the King Graham voice coming out of him, which he still does have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. I mean, I've interviewed um, Laurie Ann Cole, Ron Gilbert, and Mark Ferrari, uh, who did the original art for Monkey Islands on this podcast. And Kurt, in your book, you interviewed Al Lowe, Corey Cole, Josh Mandel, and Bob Bates. Yeah, I guess could you say why uh, why those four, why did those four uh, make it into the book? Because they were people that I could contact. <laughs> I can find their <laughs> like like nowadays people they're more around on, on Twitter uh, or Facebook and things like that. So Ron Gilbert had a, a strong presence because he had a blog going back way back well, way back when. Um, but I felt like he had also been interviewed a whole lot, and I wasn't sure what else I could ask him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, like, like there were there were tr- people I tried to hunt around for. I tried to arrange something with Jean Jensen, but I guess I guess at the time she wasn't really giving interviews. Like she came back out around uh, like Gray Matter in the 
the Gabriel Knight games came out. Um, Charles Cecil, we tried to get a hold of, but just it never worked out. So there, there were a couple other people that we tried, just wasn't able to connect to anything with. Yeah, I mean, Bob Bates is the name. I don't, I didn't know prior to reading your book. So how did you um, kind of talk about why you wanted him in the book? Uh, Infocom, and because one of the, the the legend games was Eric the Unready, which was incredibly funny. Hmm. Uh, so it, it it also gave like something outside of the the normal. Sierra and LucasArts stuff, because that's something that when I start to dig into that I want to expand my own knowledge and, and help other people expand their knowledge too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Julia, so you mentioned, yeah, you're working on this game, The Crimson Diamonds. And so did you, I, I imagine maybe you had like a hiatus away from adventure games for a while. Um, is that true? And, and if so, like, how did you kind of get back into it or kind of like, what was your trajectory with adventure games? Um, yeah, so my personal experience with with game uh, with adventure games and and so it's kind of interesting to hear from the industry perspective of how they felt like it was not as profitable as some of the other stuff. Um uh, but another thing I felt like that was kind of pushing me away from the adventure game genre was uh this move toward full motion video, this move toward 3D art that at the time both of those although they were considered technological advancements, I felt artistically they are a real step backward. And and so when you get to the later iterations of you know space uh, King's Quest and um, even um, which one oh Gabriel Knight as well like the games that had started out as two D what we now call pixel art games they started saying well yeah why don't we make this a three D game and and you know use five polygons on on a figure and and kind of steer them around or use a full motion video which at the time both of those things were very demanding on on machines as well and so when you don't have a state-of-the-art machine not only are you faced with graphics that were not as pleasing to the eye at at least in my opinion but they also would cause the computer to really be laggy and really slow and that kind of caused this disconnect between what i'm controlling on the screen and what actually is happening on the screen and so for me i i started to kind of come off of of a lot of adventure games because they were going in that direction that I was not particularly interested in following. I, I, I really love the pixel art stuff. My, my own project is, is more pixel art than anything else and, and kind of really recalls that older stuff. And, and so, I, I, I don't know, I kind of feel with the adventure game genre, I, 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 there's this, people talk about this constant need for innovation, but my perspective with it is I, I feel like it's more like a refinement of game design and story versus trying to create you know, add these new bells and whistles to something to add to, add to the experience. I kind of that's why when I when I started making the Crimson Diamond, I I really rewound the clock and said, okay, well, 1989. That's what that's where I want to be because <laughs> to me that was that was the perfection of what what I what I I loved the most when I was a kid. And so yeah, so that 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 kind of contributed to me falling off of it. What caused me to come back to the genre was when I started seeing games that were being produced by, yeah, with, by solo developers, like um, Kurt mentions Yahtzee Croshaw, who made the Chizo Mythos, Francisco Gonzalez made uh, the Ben Jordan series. And, and these are what one person using Adventure Game Studio. And that was really inspiring to me because I was seeing something that was a full game experience, but it was created by only one person. And that, and, and the kind of style that I, I always remember enjoying when I was younger. And it felt some, like something that was really possible. So I started getting more interested and in, in looking around at what else was being, was on offer. And all of a sudden I'm seeing all these amazing projects by really small teams or one person. And that's kind of what really brought me back to the adventure game genre. 
Let me just chime in there to just 100% agree with you about the 3D art in adventure games. I I, I hate it. I mean mm-hmm. the I mean everyone tells me that Grim Fandango is a great game, but I I can't I can't get past the the graphics and the tank controls. Um, Escape from Monkey Island, I just hate the graphics. Um, and even like when they started getting into the hand-drawn animation, I mean, like Curse of Monkey Island, I think is a, is quite a good game, mm-hmm. but I don't like the hand-drawn animation as much as the pixel art and so like King's Quest seven. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that at all. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you that, yeah, there's just something about the pixel art that just works so much better for me. And I don't know if it's nostalgia or, or if there's more to it than that for me, but, um, I know Kurt, what do you think? Do you, do you share our feelings about I prefer the, 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 the 2D stuff, definitely in general. I do, there was that extremely brief window before 3D accelerators took off where they're like, we're going to push SVGA as far as we can. So you had Curse of Monkey Island, you had the second Discworld game. And uh, there may have been one or two other games that used a thing that really looked like an animated cartoon. Like King's Quest Seven, but King's Quest Seven also didn't look very good. <laughs> Yeah, and also it was. I think they, it was the first game they did for win, like Windows, whatever it was, and it just ran so slow. Yes. Oh yeah, I got I got that game for Christmas, and we tried to play on our forty six thirty three, and we just just could not do it. Uh, but yeah, there was that in Torrance Passage, I think. Um, but yeah, a- after that, then the three D was kind of bad, and then <laughs> they they did some games did go back to like a two D three D blend, like the Longest Journey uses like CG rendered backgrounds and 3d characters, which yeah, kind of, cause it's kind of is 2d ish. Uh, but is this the art? I never liked as much. Like I like the, the, the cartooniness of everything. Uh, yeah, actually. Oh, sorry. Let me just say, speaking of just the slowness, like, I just want to say like in your book, how many entries there are where you comment on the characters walking too slowly <laughs> as a, uh, like game killer. I feel like that's one of those, those basic issues that uh like when, when people are designing the game they don't really are really conscious of until they give it to somebody else and like wow this game it just, just takes forever to get anywhere because it's something that you need to do a lot especially if you're lost in the game yeah um okay well so so julia so you said that your game is um sort of a like a spiritual successor to the colonel's bequest uh which was one, another one of the sierra games um, it was never one of my favorite Sierra games. I mean, my, um, I mean, it looks gorgeous. Uh, I love the art in it, but my experience playing it was kind of, I would just spend the whole time wandering around, not able to figure out what to do. And then like the game was over and then it's like, who killed? The person? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Um, did you, did you like the game game or was it more just the art of the game that you really sort of gravitated to? When I was a kid, that game was terrifying. <laughs> it was so scary. And and because it was Sierra and because it was so easy to die in any number of gruesome and unexpected ways, I yeah, I was not a huge fan of it growing up, to be completely honest with you. But it was the art that really, really did grab me. And and I liked to just walk around the the grounds, the you know, the exterior of the house, inside the house. It was t- I, I actually recently read a, a really old article from Computer Gaming World about the Colonel's Bequest and the development of the Colonel's Bequest. And potentially the reason why it does look so amazing is because the artists were given a lot of leeway in terms of what they were generating. They were given some reference material, some photos of, of similar houses and things like that. But they were pretty much left to their own devices. And stuff like King's Quest 
uh, what would happen is Roberta Williams would sketch out like a, a basic, you know, here's a tree and this is where the stream is and that's where the rock is. And then she'd pass it on to the artist who would in turn interpret that to, to be something that was more, you know, professional or whatever. But what was great about the Colonel's Bequest is they didn't, she didn't do that. She just kind of said, go and do the thing. And they were able to, you know, Doug, Douglas Herring and I think... Um, there was another artist on that and on the project as well. They were able to, from the ground up, create this amazing atmosphere with you know amazing lighting and with that very limited sixteen color palette. It it was, it, it created this whole mood. And you wouldn't think with the brightest rainbow colors ever you could create <laughs> something that was this beautiful dusk kind of twilight time with a lot of atmosphere and and have it be something that really really made an impression on me as, as a kid. And so yeah, when I started making my own project. When I thought, okay, well, what do I want to do? That was the f- absolute first thing that I thought of in terms of the best example of what Sierra was doing. Well, you know, I I, I mentioned I, I interviewed Lorianne Claw. I just went back and listened to that interview, and she was saying that you know, for um, for Quest for Glory Five, it was all like three D assets mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And you go back and look at it now, and it just looks like crap. You would never want to play it. Whereas you go back and look at Quest for Glory one or two, and it still looks great. Oh yeah, you know, that there's just something you know so appealing and timeless about yes. that kind of that art style. Yeah. Um. But so, Kurt, what did you think of Colonel's Bequest? I didn't play it until much later. Like uh, when I was a kid, my dad had bought the Dagger of Amon Ra, which was the second Laura Bow game, and for some reason, I just never got into it. And going back and replaying it, like I remember the opening segment of that game is it's pretty bad. Uh, it's not until you get to the museum where like it really starts to pick up. I'm like, oh, this game is actually pretty neat. Uh, but like, I was kind of limited to what I could find at the time, and I was just never able to find the Colonel's Bequest. So it wasn't until I started writing the book where I went back and gave it a shot. And uh, you know, playing playing like stuff like Space Quest Three or King Quest for Glory Two back in the '90s, like that stuff felt a little outdated. Um, I remember my dad would come in and watch me playing this stuff, which was you know, not what he spent $1,500 on a computer PC for, but he's like, that game is so old. I'm like, yeah, but I still like it. Uh, but going back, like, I, re- I really was blown away by how good the Colonel's Bequest looked. Like, it used color extremely well. Yes, yes. <laughs> and everything about the atmosphere. Like, yeah, the game is kind of a mess. Um, it's it's a mess in a good way because it was really <laughs> them trying to be experimental. They realized that people were getting stuck in their games. They weren't having fun with them. And I mean, there's this kind of cynical take that they made these games so difficult because so they could sell strategy guys, which <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it was something that Sierra was actively trying to address and it didn't work, but yeah, give him props for trying. Oh, for sure. I, I totally agree with Kurt in the way that the game design, they, it was kind of an evolution of what they had done before and that they, that you can stumble through to an ending and you might have no idea what happened, but you got an ending and, and <laughs> it's kind of up to you which way it goes, but uh, it kind of encourages you not to get stuck. Although it does feel sometimes you can stumble upon things and, and not really know what's going on and accidentally progress the game, which are things I did consider when I was making my own game, but I kind of love the idea that you can experience a story from beginning to end with that game and not really have to struggle or get stuck too badly usually. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. It's a, it's a very admirable experiment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really interesting. I guess, I don't know if we should explain, but it, it's basically, it's like an Agatha Christie mystery. It's like, um, and then there were none you know, the, the people are trapped in this house on this Island and they're being killed off one by one. And, um, and I think, and, and so sort of what's interesting about it is that, 
um, all the other games, pretty much all the other Sierra games, um, pretty much it's like one, you know, the time doesn't matter that much, except for maybe like King's Quest three, like we were saying, but you know, like if you want to like, I don't know, get into the cave or whatever, you can always get into the cave. It doesn't matter what time, how long you've been playing for, but Colonel's Bequest, you know, the, these sort of scripted events are ha- happen at different times. It's almost like immersive theater or something. Um, and so, but the sort of the problem with that from a gameplay perspective is that, you know, there's like 30 rooms or whatever, and there might only be something you can do in one of them, uh, at the particular time that you're at. And you just have to sort of figure out or know which, which, where, where there's something happening. And, and that, that got really frustrating for me. Um, but it was a really interesting, you know, it was, it was clear that they were sort of trying to push the art form forward. Um, but but so Julia, so you so how did you um like how do how are you addressing some of these kind of kinds of things uh, in your game? Like how is your game like what is how is it similar to the Colonel's Bequest and how is it different? It's similar in the yeah the the um the kind of Agatha Christie style of cozy mystery that type of thing where you've got a bunch of people and you stick them all in one big house and they kind of are bumping up against each other and irritating each other conspiring with each other all all those fun all that fun stuff I tried to keep in there but I was I was really aware that I didn't want the player to ever feel like they weren't in control of story progression and so what I did was I added a notebook feature that explicitly tells you what you need to do to to progress the game, to progress to the next flag or, or whatever, how you want to describe it. Because I felt like with The Colonel's Bequest, it is an adventure game, and usually adventure games really encourage exploration. But with that game, because you can actually accidentally walk into a room and progress the game without meaning to, it it really did discourage that. Or, or maybe it encouraged multiple playthroughs or something. But I, I didn't want that to be something that people worried about. I wanted I wanted people to feel like they could roam free and talk to anyone, ask them any questions, and and feel in control of that whole the whole experience. And so this is, it was it was mostly the, the notebook feature, and just kind of trying to learn from both you know the Colonel's Bequest and the sequel, the the Dagger of Amon Ra, which also kind of did have that problem as well. Well, the way I remember it in the Colonel's Bequest is basically you could advance the story by doing something, or advance the time by doing something, or if you just like didn't figure out, it would just advance the time on its own after a while. And so it was almost like the game is like, okay, you're stupid. You know, like you just see the clock appear and like move forward 15 minutes. And you're like, okay, I knew I, knew I was supposed to do something there, but I, I don't know what it was. And and it was sort of like the, the game's just like telling you, you screwed up and now you can't, uh, you can't fix it until the next playthrough or something. The flags are a little bit strange in that one. I think I recently kind of did a quick playthrough to see how to, to how to get through it. And there, there are, I think you do have to trigger certain things, although they might not make a lot of sense about why that particular thing is triggering a certain other thing, which is another problem that I didn't really want to have. But um, it, it's interesting because it's a text parser game. The Colonel's Bequest is a text parser game. And I tested it, and you only really need to enter four text parser commands into the entire game to get through it beginning to end. With a very bad <laughs> ending, but you can get to it. <laughs> wow. Um and so you're like um you're making your game in Adventure Game Studio, right? So talk about like how do you um like what's the uh uh process for making a a one person adventure game these days? <laughs> yeah, so the Crimson Diamond is is my first game that I'm kind of making on my own and the process of making a, a an adventure game by yourself is a lot of learning. And uh, it started with YouTube tutorials. I, I visited the Adventure Game Studio forums, which is a very active and thriving and super helpful community. 
So that's kind of, that was part of the process, not being afraid to ask for help and learning, learning kind of as I went. And I, there's some, there's a game that Kurt mentioned in his book that I did want to mention as a favorite game, not for real, really playing reasons, but more of an inspirational reason, which would be Hugo's House of Horrors, which was a solo game adventure, a text price adventure game. And it was so inspiring to me because I look at it and yeah, everyone was, it might agree that the artwork might not be the best. And David P. Gray was a programmer first, and he kind of did the artwork as he needed to do it. But the important thing that I took away from that is that he did it. He didn't let anything stand in his way between making a game. You know, he didn't say, well, I, I'm not really good at this. I'm not really good at that. He just got on with it. And for me, when I when I started my game, I'm an, I was freelance illustrator for 10 years. And, and after that, I started to try to teach myself Adventure Game Studio bit by bit. And I, I was kind of saying, well, I don't really know how to use this. So, I mean, you know, maybe I won't really try to do something. But you, you see other people learning as they go. And, and I kind of wanted to just jump in and, and see what I could do with it after seeing, you know, yeah, the Ben Jordan series from Francisco Gonzalez and, of course, Yahtzee Croshaw stuff. Just saying, hey, it can be done. So what, why, what am I waiting for? And why should I stop myself from trying to do something when, you know, everyone is always learning on the go anyway? And and that that was my my experience with developing up to this point to a point where I realized I think I know everything so far like knock on wood so far I think I know everything I'm going to need to know to actually finish this game and that was that was a really good feeling and even if I don't now I know how to ask for that help which which is also a really valuable skill to have secret you ever think about making your own adventure (laughs) game I tried actually right after I uh, got done with that book I was like you know what I think I know adventure games pretty well so I will try to make one of my own. Uh, so it was called Christopher Columbus is an Idiot. Uh, I did it in Adventure Game Studio. Ooh. Um, it's actually, if, if you go deep in the Adventure Game Studio, uh, probably not in the forums, but in their database, it's it's in there. Because I had completed like maybe 25% of it. Um, and it wasn't too bad for me to pick up Adventure Game Studio because I had uh, majored in computer science in college. And a lot of that stuff is basically like C++ syntax. Um, so I actually got to a point where, again, like the first, maybe 25% of the game was completely done, not bug free, but completely done and everything else was mapped out, but I'm not an artist and everything there was drawn, scribbled in MS paint. And eventually it came to a point like, well, I don't know if I can devote time to this without making it a commercial project and to make it a commercial project, I need good art. Uh, like I was drawn immediately to the Crimson Diamond because the art is extremely good. Like there, there are so few games that really like understand that kind of like EGA look, like, you know, that really like the Colonel's Bequest. And I just like my level of skill is not at that level. Um, I, I talked to one of my friends about, you know, doing a little bit of pixel art. Um, but I looked at things like I talked to Dave Gilbert. I watch at iGames about like hiring an artist, but just didn't really have the money. Didn't really know how to do anything with Kickstarter. So it was something that kind of fell by the wayside and just a general like lack of confidence in it. Cause it was something that I found highly amusing because it was very Monkey Island style comedy game, which I, I think everybody that makes a comedy game is inspired by Monkey Island, but I didn't know if anybody else found it funny. Uh, <laughs> So what was the title? Because the title sounded sort of niche for sure. Christopher Columbus is an idiot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess what are kind of the um, like how wide like like say um, you have a lot of success. Like how much how how large is the audience for a a one person 
adventure game these days? Like what's sort of the, the reasonable best case scenario? Uh, I don't, I can't really say. I mean, I, I know, I know for a fact that Thimbleweed Park sold pretty well, but that's not a one person game. That was a small team, but, um, if yeah, but just just to explain, so that was Ron Gilbert who did Secret of Monkey Islands and um and Gary Winnick, and I think they had a couple other people pitch in from time to time. But that also there was a Kickstarter that raised I forget hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think so. It did pretty well. Um, you know, not not like exact, not not like a you know a hobby project. <laughs> um, yeah, even Dave Gilbert, like he's he's a writer and designer, but he hires people to do the art. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess, I guess, Julie, what sort of, um, like, what are your, uh, what are you hope, what are your hopes for, uh, for Crimson Time? Well, I, I will say that I, I remember that, uh, Thimbleweed Park, the Kickstarter was something like 600,000 or something like that, I believe. Um, and, uh, I remember reading on Ron Gilbert's blog that he, I mean, it probably had a long tail. I mean, it probably is still selling kind of decently, even, you know, years after the fact. But at the time he had written this entry, he said they pretty much had broken even with it, which is very scary when you think about how much money that is and, and how, how many units they'd have to sell to get to, to recoup, you know, although you don't really recoup from Kickstarter, but just in terms of other expenses that they happen to have after that. And so I think what, what really appeals to me about adventure games in general is that, yeah, if, if you do it by yourself, you, 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 you can, really hopefully not need to sell nearly as much um to to get to get to a point where you can feel like you can make a living from it but um it it, it is tricky the the thing with with it being niche and we mentioned adventure games being niche is one of the kind of things i dislike about adventure games is that this conception which is true that it is a niche because i think that the gameplay of of adventure games w- would appeal to a broad amount of people and and i think that People always love stories, and so I don't know why it's considered to be a niche. And I, of course, I wish it wasn't. For you know, when I eventually do commercially release the Crimson Diamond, but I think of stuff like Monster Hunter or Dark Souls that are very, you know, they're very very hard games to play, and, and not many very many people have the ability to you know finish those games. But they're not considered niche per se; they're considered pretty mainstream. And I would say adventure games are a lot easier and you know to digest and to and to play from beginning to end than those, but it's still considered very niche, and, and I wish that wasn't the case. Um, but of course, this is the, the world we're living in. Um, but um, I'm hoping, of course, to be able to make a living with with adventure games. Um, it remains to be seen. But you know, you see people like Dave Gilbert of Wajedai Games, and of, you know, of course, I mentioned Francisco Gonzalez, and, and there are um, so many other uh, solo game devs that are you know they might be doing other gigs on the side as well, which I also do. And, and you kind of, you know, you try to make it work within, within that context. Well, just looking at your website, it looked like there'd been a lot of press interest in your game. I mean, you had like 30 different appearances that you linked to <laughs> or something. I mean, do, do you feel like there's been a lot of interest in the Crimson Diamond? I, yeah, I feel like it has had an in, a very encouraging amount of, of interest in it. And, you know, hopefully that'll translate to sales down the road, but, um, the, the the way that it looks, I know it kind of does have a more of a unique look than a, than a lot of games because I'm using that really that 30 year old EGA 16 color palette that we don't really see very much nowadays. And maybe for good reason, I don't know. But when I show in the game at events, what's been fun is that I have this big extendable banner I put beside the table. And when I see people walk by and I see their eyes just light up in recognition, 
that feels really good. And it also means that I know that I can approach that person and say, hi, you know, this is look, this is style of familiar to you. And they'll tell me, you know, oh, this looks like a maniac mansion or this reminds me. A lot of people said Hugo. So Hugo has had Hugo's House of Horrors has had an immense cultural impact for being a one person, you know, one person game that was developed 30 years ago, 30 whatever years ago. So I, people do still talk about it, but it's been really good in terms of feedback to, to see people be interested in, in the style because it's, it's not really seen as much. So I'm hoping that does translate to, to, to sales. Um, although it, another interesting thing I found when I've been showing it at events is how many kids kind of are getting interested in it. And I know it's something I really wasn't expecting. I kind of always expected it to be, you know, for people my age or a little bit older, having grown up with it. But I guess I, I shouldn't have been surprised that maybe kids have it, uh, it appeals to kids because, hey, I was a kid when it first appealed to me. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that it might not be as, as niche, although I am using a text parser. You know, that's the interface. You have to type the commands in into the game to, to play it. So I'm kind of I know that's a bit of a niche of a niche, but I, I kind of feel like people are so used to texting and typing nowadays that maybe we can bring that back. So I've got a lot of hopes riding on it. And yeah, the, the media attention has been has been super encouraging, too, for sure. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, just watching the trailer for the Crimson Diamonds and there's a part where um, the character is sitting in a chair and then you just type in spin and she spins around in the chair. And that's the stuff that you get with a text parser, those like fun little things where you're you're like, I wonder if they you know, thought if the designer thought of this and then you see that they did. That's the delight. That's that's the magic to me of the text parser and, and why when I was first making my game, I couldn't think of doing anything else but that because there's this feeling of limited unlimited possibility of course it's an illusion it always is but the magic of that and watching people when they're playing it and i I see them try something and the game anticipates that attempt and has an appropriate response that look of delight on their face is is just what really keeps me going a lot of the time um and, and so it's, it's, it's not just even that though. It's also the way the dialogue is handled in a text parser game. There aren't, there aren't dialogue trees that you're just kind of going down this menu of, of dialogue items. It's more organic in that you have to listen to what people are saying and then ask them relevant questions after that, which I find really works well for a mystery game. And I find that it also reflects more realistically on what, on people's conversations are actually like. And, and that's magic to me too. That that whole aspect of it for me, and making it feel like yeah, an interactive. It's more like an interactive story than than maybe a, some other games potentially. For that reason, where you have to pay attention to the text on the screen, and there are there's no voice acting in the game either. And but well, partly because well, expense and time, but also because the games at that time didn't really have voice acting, which really gives the musician musician working on the game, Dan Policar, it really gives him the opportunity to really um, not have to worry about the music overshadowing the voice acting. He's mentioned this to me a few times, that he appreciates the fact that he doesn't have to worry. He, it's not just background music he can do. The, the music can be more melodic and more, more, and more tone setting than, than if you had people's voices in the game. And that's another thing where those old games, when they didn't have voices, they didn't have to think about that either. And so you can, you got these really you can get these really beautiful pieces of music and that, that don't have to just sit in the background. It's funny, you know, when, um, when Thimbleweed, I mean, I like the, uh, I like the lack of voices cause I always liked doing all the mm-hmm. voices myself. Cause I would be playing the game with somebody else, you know, some oftentimes someone who was like unwilling, you know, I had kind of <laughs> into uh, watching me play, but you know, and then I would do all the voices and stuff. And so it was funny when Thimbleweed part came out, 
I played it with my girlfriend and she had never really played any um, of these style of games before. And it's on YouTube, I guess. If you look at my YouTube channel, you know, you can watch us play through the whole game. But we had a, like an argument at the beginning about whether to play it without with voices or without. And I said without because I wanted to do all the voices, but <laughs> but she didn't want she didn't want to hear me doing all the voices. So we, we did it with the voices. But um, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that sounds good to me. Um, but I, I guess I'll say yes. Yeah, so I played we played all the way through Thimbleweed Park and we solved all the puzzles ourselves, which doesn't happen a lot <laughs> with adventure games. Um, and then Machinarium is the other adventure game within the last decade or so that I played um, that I liked a lot as well. But those are the, really the only two adventure games I've played um, in recent years. Um, I guess like, Kurt, what did you, do you think that uh, Machinarium and Thimbleweed Park are those two, two of the best or, or am I really missing out on uh on other stuff that's come out? Some of the Wadjet Eye games I haven't played too much of, but I know are, are pretty good. Um, some of the ones I've been revisiting, like they made another Broken Sword game, uh, which didn't really catch me very much. Uh, what else was there? Broken Age I thought was okay. Uh, it had very good art, uh, but something about it didn't really grab me very much either. But all the ones I have tried are kind of like follow-ups or remakes of, of older games. Like I tried the Gabriel Knight remake, which was... It was fine, but like it didn't give me like give a reason to play it over the old games that much. Uh, and they brought back Leisure Suit Larry for some reason. Uh, and uh, I tried playing one of that, and it was I know everybody says it gets off to a bad start and it eventually finds its footing, which I guess. But maybe when I get around to it, yeah. Well, I, there's just something I don't know. There's some like like you know like King's Quest or Space Quest or Monkey Islands. I could play those games all day, but there were so many other games I tried, even like ones that are supposed to be really good, you know, like, I don't know, Full Throttle or Salmon Max or like whatever. I just, I don't, I just like started them and they didn't really grab me and I couldn't figure out exactly what to do and I kind of gave up. And there is just something about like certain, I don't know, kind of the, um, I don't know the personality of a game or something that for adventure games, it seems to me to really matter a lot whether it works for you or not. And, and if it doesn't work for you, um, you know, it, it just kind of doesn't, doesn't click. It's not a strict adventure game, but do you play life is strange? Uh, yeah, my girlfriends and I played a little, we played like through the first episode or two of that. I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, I, it was more sort of like, more of like a choose your own story than a, than puzzle. I mean, there were some puzzles, but it wasn't the emphasis, at least that's how it seemed to me, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's very much a, a telltale of uh, the, the later Telltale style the games, but it's it's a really good game. It's highly highly recommended. And uh, again, it's not really a strict adventure game, but Night in the Woods was also really good. Um, it's almost like a like, there's very little in the way of actual puzzle solving. Like it presents itself as a platformer, but it's almost more like a visual novel. Um, but it had a really cool art style, really good, really good story. Yeah, I haven't played it, but I, I've seen I've noticed the art is is really gorgeous. Um, how about Julia? Are there any? Uh... Like you, I think you've mentioned a couple other adventure games that have come out recently, but sort of what's uh, what are what are some other ones that you um, that people should know about? Yeah, uh, games that I've played recently that I thought were amazing were Paradigm by Jacob Generica, which is kind of a more traditional point-and-click adventure game with um, just really gorgeous art. It has a really good tone, a really good comedic tone. Um, I really recommend that one. That's more traditional. If if you want to get something that it's kind of an adventure game, but kind of um, not, I don't know if it would have made it into Kurt's book, for instance, would be Return of the Oberdin by Lucas Pope. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, I'd, uh, I don't know if I would. I still haven't played that game yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's, we started doing a, a series of like indie focus books afterwards, and we were going to focus put that in there. I've been meaning yes. to play that. It's kind of like, oh, it's do, you, 
think of like the walking sims like like gone home and firewatch are those adventure games it's like it's kind of like an evolution i would consider it a branch of it it's exciting actually to see things just change the way and evolve you know there, there always will be people who want to be more traditionalist like me but i love seeing just the form kind of take all these different shapes and and it's kind of hard to put your finger on on it or define anything and and that's really cool i i, I really appreciate that so return to the orbit i i heartily recommend it's not for everyone potentially but the the the, the black and white pixely kind of aesthetic i love it and it's a mystery as well and it's 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 really a vision and it's kind of ingenious from beginning to end. So definitely, definitely check it out. Although I can't say whether it's necessarily an adventure game, but it is a narrative game. And I think now we're kind of maybe we're kind of going into that realm where we're talking about the more as story focused games or narrative games versus what is considered an adventure game, because there's so many hangups associated with, with that term. Well, so, so Kurt, your, your book, I think, came out in 2011. So obviously there have been a lot of years since then. Are you th- ever think about releasing a, like a 1200 page second edition or anything? I've thought of it and I don't know what to do with it because like Amazon's printing service tops out at 828 pages. <laughs> uh, on the website, there have been some articles that have updated and as far as like when remakes came out of them. Uh, there are a couple of entries. There was a new Tex Murphy game, like, uh, that was oh, a series really? that Access Games had put out. Like, Under a Killing Moon was kind of popular that one Christmas because it was a FMV, first-person adventure game. Uh, and then there were two more games after that, the Pandora Directive and Overseer. And they, they did a Kickstarter for one called The Tesla Effect, which I think I had backed and then never got around to actually playing. Um, but, I mean, like, the focus in the book was always between the period of, like, 1980s-ish to 2000, just to focus on a specific period. So the amount of stuff wouldn't necessarily increase that much, but at the same time, there are a lot of indie adventure games I think would qualify. Um, But again, just kind of limited to page space. Um, And I mean, that was the first book I did. I didn't know anything about graphic layout programming, uh, graphic layout design. So everything was uh, laid out in word uh, and everything was black and white just to keep the costs reasonable. So if I were to do an updated version and maybe actually try to pitch it to another publisher uh, and maybe have to break it up into a couple different volumes. Uh, I just have so many other books in the work and like, I don't necessarily know if I'd want to do that, but if anybody was interested, I would definitely focus on it. Can you tell me uh, what's the story behind that? I really like the cover of the book. It's this desk with all these, sta- you know, there's a computer with King's Quest one on it. And then there's these stacks of boxes of different games. And then there's, uh, there's like King Graham's hat. There's a rubber chicken with a pulley <laughs> in the middle. Uh, there's like a cross stitch or something with purple tentacle. Um, there's Max from Sam and Max. Like what, just like who made that or like where'd that picture come from? Uh, I got the idea because of the Infocom feelies. Like I liked looking, especially I think it was even uh, one of the really weird ones. Leather Goddesses of Phobos had a picture of just like the different junk that you'd find in the game posed around a photograph. And I sort of thought of it's, it's just an interesting idea to have like physical things of of the games put around. Like that is my computer desk. That's my computer monitor. Was my computer monitor. That was my apartment at the time before it got leveled by the landlord. Uh, and those are all my games. And those are all your games. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was actually done by uh, a friend of college for mine who was very, very crafty. 
Although, oh, rather amusingly, by complete coincidence, her ex-roommate's husband was a video game music composer who did music for a couple of Wadjet Eye games, which is how I was introduced to Gabe Gilbert. What's what's the thing? Is like a necklace or something hanging on the corner of the monitor? Yeah, that's the medallion from Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Father. Ah, uh, okay. I never played that. Unfortunately, that broke in a move somewhere. <laughs> But but I still <laughs> yeah. still have I think uh, the Max dolls in my daughter's stuff cabinet and stuff thing I I still have the purple tentacle hanging up around. <laughs> um, are you guys looking forward to like the other one is like you know the the guys the two guys from Andromeda have a crowdfunded game called Space Venture, which has been in development for I think nine years or something. I backed that in a bit. Me too. Yeah, I I think it's I know that they had like significant development issues. Uh, and it's, it's fine. Like, they'll get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like it's, I mean, uh, I just checked the Kickstarter page or something, and it said that they just need, there's like some bugs with the save load system, but they said the game is done other than that. So hopefully it'll be out soon. Um, I guess the the other thing is like, I don't know if you guys have seen, um, Ron Gilbert posted this thing a while back where he said, if I... You know, like if 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 I it was called the, the the it was a blog post titled like if I made Monkey Island three or something like that because I guess I'll explain he left um, Lucas Arts and so the the curse of Monkey Island he wasn't involved with and Monkey Island two had this crazy weird cliffhanger ending and everyone wants to know how he would have what what would have happened in the next game if he had been involved but he says that he uh he would only do it if he if uh he were to have the rights to Monkey Island, which I think at this point would require Disney yeah. Yep. Yeah. To, to sell it to him. So um, what do you think? Can we get, does anyone have any uh, contacts at Disney to <laughs> make this happen? Well, I was involved with uh, the limited run project and I, I mean, they, they don't have anything set down because that's way, way above my pay grade. But I know like they were hoping that this whole project would generate some interest at Disney because Disney is so big that they didn't really even know what it was just because it's like, you know, some old game from the nineties that people like. Uh, so hoping that there was at least some money generated enough that they'd be like, Oh, okay. People are interested in this monkey Island thing. And here's the original designer who would be interested in doing something with it. So maybe make some sort of a connection happen, but you know, ultimately who knows? I have no idea how well it sold. So. You're talking about the Tales of Monkey Island Telltale. Oh no, game. it's a limited run games collector's edition uh, that I think you could pre-order a couple of months ago. It came out, uh, but the pre-order window has closed for it, so they're they're still in the process of uh, making it. But what is this? It's a collector's. It was edition. a compilation of the old. It's a games. compilation of the old games that also had a lot of knickknacks okay. with it, like it had a, a plastic model of Guybrush. Uh, I think they did something with Murray. Each of the artifacts was based off of one mm-hmm. of the games, but also along with it was uh, a book that we interviewed all the people that was going to be a big oral history of the Monkey Island games. Oh, wait, did that come? Uh, did the book come out? It's not out yet. They're still working on putting yeah. it out. Oh, well, that sounds cool. Um, so Julia, no, no contacts at Disney. Um, <laughs> not anything more than anybody else has, unfortunately. And, and and speaking of the whole rights issue with with Monkey Island, I know that you know there are some Sierra developers as well that have the same problem, but with Activision, and you know this idea where you know we want to make more Quest for Glory games or something, and and Activision 
uh, they 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 don't really care. I guess is is the best way to put it. It's just not there's not enough money in it for them to even turn their head a lot of the time. And so unfortunately, the the rights are just kind of locked up and probably will never ever see the light of day. Yeah, that's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, there needs to be some law, some that those. Yeah, you know, some sort of, I don't know, something where those rights sunset back to the early, I don't know, where the designer after 25 years can make whatever they want. Or I don't know. Like the thing, that. the stars have to align and somebody who works with them has to be a fan of these games. Yes. Like, like yeah. somebody has to care. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then I think you would see more things like that happen. Yeah. All right. Well, if anyone who's listening to this works at Disney or would be willing to get hired at Disney and work your way up <laughs> let us know um yeah because i don't know i just uh, i gotta i gotta get ron gilbert's monkey island three before i die i mean that's just that's non-negotiable um all right so we're pretty much out of time so we should probably start wrapping this up so um i guess uh do you guys have any uh like just uh, talk about like what other i don't know what you've got going on in the future or projects that you want people to know about so, um, so Kurt, what's going on with uh, Hardcore Gaming 101.net that people should know about? So I spent most of last year and a good half of the year before that putting together an enormously sized guide to Japanese RPGs. Uh, that is, was just, they just put up the page for it yesterday. Uh, it's published by Bitmap Books, who does a lot of visual compendiums. And it's, I guess... Similar in size to the adventure game book, the the reviews themselves are a little shorter just because it's covering many, many more games, but it's also full color and hardback. And we put a lot of work into into it. So please look forward to it when it comes out. Uh, I think I said the title during the intro. Uh, No, I didn't. What's what's the title? It's just uh, very simple. A guide to Japanese role-playing games. All right, cool. Yeah, so everyone check that out. And uh, Julia... um, What's uh, when's the Crimson Diamond coming out? Uh, hopefully this year. Um, that that has a bit big asterisk beside it because um, I, I don't know. Um, this being my first kind of game project from beginning to end, I I don't know what the development cycle is like on these things. I know from hearing about other people's stories about launching a game, just the last you know the last ten percent takes eighty percent of the time or something like that. So so we'll have to wait and see. But in terms of development, I'm about halfway through maybe a bit more than halfway through. So um, fingers crossed. But yeah, I mean, if you want to know more about the Crimson Diamond, uh, actually, I, I discovered the other day, if you just Google Crimson Diamond, my my game is the first result. So that's kind of nice. <laughs> um, so just Google Crimson Diamond. You can find the page for it. And all the social media stuff is there. Um, I, I, I stream once a week on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, sometimes with Dan, the musician, where he live composes music for the game on a genuine Roland MT32, which is a synth from back in the day from 30 plus years ago. And either that or we work on some art for the game, not spoiling anything, just um, I've been redoing the introductory art that is in the game, uh, in the demo on Steam right now, but um, it's kind of really rough. The rest of the game art is cult- is, is at a finished state. But the introductory art was just something I kind of smashed together, and I'm I'm working to upgrade that slowly over time. But um, there is a link to the Steam store page where you can download and play Chapter One of the game, and hopefully wishlist it if you like what you see. Have you thought about when the game comes out? Like, do you have any events planned or like promotions or anything like that? 
I would, yeah, I would. <laughs> events would be nice. Yeah, I mean, whenever, whenever that can happen again, for sure. I, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to do that. If you know, barring that, of course, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll do something special, like do, you know, do, do a special launch stream or something like that, where we can play it or ask questions or do giveaways or and, and, and fun things. I haven't really thought that far ahead. I've kind of been so wrapped up in finishing it that I, I need to start thinking about those things too. Well, no, definitely looking forward to it. I mean, like, yeah, just the idea of playing a game that, that looks like that has that same art style as the Colonel's Bequest and is maybe a little bit more, you know, approachable <laughs> and, you know, has some of the, the kinks ironed out uh, is definitely very appealing to me. Um, so, yeah, so uh, let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Kurt Collada and Julia Minamata. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Kurt Collada and Julia Minamata for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.